Hi, I'm Roxanne. I'm an alcoholic. And just in case I just didn't bring enough humility with me to this talk, I ran off to the ladies' room. And not until I left it, I realized that I'd been in a stall where the toilet had overflowed in my... <laughs> humility. The title of my talk is that my way doesn't work in looking for God in my life. And I've gone over this talk in my head and my heart a number of times. And oddly enough, <clears throat> I've seen God most powerfully in the last 30 minutes. The student organization asked me if I would please be willing to talk with his daughter, and I was. As I left, uh, you I can handle. She said to me in the first 30 minutes. And I was thinking about that intervention of, and really wondering what it was all about. And I, I'm 11 years sober. I'm one of these people that has a dual diagnosis in addition to my addiction. I have suffered from chronic depression. And one of my resentments, one of my many resentments, was that people would come in and they would get sober and they would talk on and on and on about how, and how their life had changed and how they had this pink cloud. And I often say that I probably have another recover or another drunk or two left in me. I do not have another first year of recovery. I would not redo it. For I could not redo it. I needed you. I wanted nothing to do. I'm going to try and stay with my notes because I'm very nervous in spite of the fact that I teach in a university. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Because all I have the energy for, I'm not on it, I just follow it. I have 11 years of sobriety and I am on step two. Seems to me after 11 years I could have, but I'm not. I'm on step two, and I've been on step two forever, and step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, and I still don't quite, I don't lack for courage, but I do lack for faith. It is also true that I have an indefatigable spirit. I have, I'm like the Energizer Bunny, you know, I just keep going, going, and that's the good news because for 11 years, doing that kept me sober. My first sponsor, who had a sixth grade education, one was, <coughs> the only step I had to do perfectly was the first step. And so we proceeded to fight about it. Was I an alcoholic? Wasn't I an alcoholic? You know, did I have a problem with drinking? With drinking. And I had so many goddamn problems at the time that it was really hard to know. And she finally sat me down one day with her marvelous grade education and said, you know what, Roxanne, if somebody told you you were allergic to strawberries, would you argue with them over whether or not you could have them one Sunday a month? And it occurred to me that I, I go into anaphylactic shock from, and I never meet with a new physician that I don't right away say, so don't give me any penicillin. But I had innumerable failures with alcohol, and it never occurred to me that I shouldn't continue to do that. My search for God is constantly in peace. My internalized fear and terror of the world I, I, like many of you, have a device. think, well, you know, and then, then my, my therapist will say to me, well, sit with that for a minute and see what you come up with. Pure chaos. Pure fear. I don't know which way to go. I don't write to me. Well, just sit with it a minute longer and still write to you. That will always get me to burst into tears. I don't know. When I came into recovery, the two hardest sentences for me were, I don't know where God is in my life. And sometimes... My first introduction to the disease of alcoholism came when I was four years old and Duper put a loaded shotgun in me. And he said to my mother, that's it. I woke up the next morning. I wasn't sure whether or not I was alive or dead. I pinched my mother. I believe we were both alive and we lived in that for many more years. My father was a 
gunnery sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. And people meet me and they say to me, oh, your father was a Marine. Boy, I'll bet when he said jump, you all said how high. And I correct them and I say, no, my father was a Marine. And when my father said jump, you asked permission to land. He was a violent man and he died when I was 11 and I, was, and I agonized with guilt. My alcoholic mother then moved us across country to live with her alcoholic father and the episodes of rage and hate and violence were endless. By the time I was 16, I was molested by four different men. These were all men that I had trusted, all men that I thought would father me. They forced me into a submission that made I was the oldest of eight children, and I became the hero and the protector. I became fearless, and I was determined that none of my siblings would suffer as I had. I grew up the scapegoat. It was the beginning, as I look back now, of my need to control everything around me. The metaphor that I use that helps me with this today is that it was like trying to keep marbles on a table. I can anticipate, I can sniff out an asshole. Hypervigilant doesn't begin to describe the way I have lived my life. I parented my sisters through beatings, running away, foster care, more courtroom battles than I can think about, and I watched as their innocence was shattered, never realizing. I buried my feelings and my hurt and my rage so deeply inside of me that it is only... I became deeply religious, Catholic. And I have to say that for me, the nuns are and the navigators of my mind. I began drinking in high school. In the early days, I was always a binge drinker. I had an early introduction. I was never a person who could drink. I went to college because I had nowhere else. I could hardly stay in college. My depression took me over in the first year of my college education, and I decided to commit suicide. It made a lot of sense to me at the time, and I went to Chicago being the good drama queen that I am, and I went down to State in Madison, and I stood on the L tracks, and I was just prepared to throw myself in front of the next train when something flew in. And this enormous African-American woman said to me, come here, child. Look. She said, come over here. And I went over and this woman in her perm flipped back my eyelid and pulled a cinder. And she patted me on the shoulder and she and I knew that I could make it work. And I knew that in that moment God had touched me. In college, I really had my first love experience. I had a wonderful psychologist, just a wonderful psychologist. It was the first love I'd really ever known, for reasons I'll talk about later. And, my, and then the phone rang one morning. And, and then somewhere in that grieving, I decided that the thing to do, and from then on, I went from a straight F cleave. But one of the things that happened with Florence was that <laughs> she said to me, you have a problem with alcohol. She was wise enough to know that it was hereditary. And I assured her that I would never be like my mother and I could never be like my father. And she said, well, I can help you make sure it doesn't happen because I, I'm aware of a planned, controlled dream that if you start it today, you will never have to become alcoholic. It is my testimony to harm reduction. Needless to say, it didn't work. But I believed it would because I was never going to be like them and I was never going to be like you. And I knew how to control marbles at sea. So from the beginning, I did my two drinks and my three drinks, and I maintained my arrogance about how I could drink better than my family and how I was going to teach them. And every now and then, I would slip into a state. No big deal. Shit happens. 
Before I was 25, I'd been in my first under-the-influence car accident, but, you know, I could rationalize. Every time I worshipped at the porcelain altar, I told myself it was never had anything to do with the alcohol. It was always the food. Alcoholics, for me, were mean and violent people, and I was not going to be one. Years went by, and my drinking continued. I came across a pamphlet one day in the emergency room of questions you needed to answer. I really wasn't sure I was thinking about it, but I was pretty sure. So I read the pamphlet, and it said, do you drink alone? And I thought, well, of course I drink alone. I live alone. Who in the hell would I drink with? But it made me so nervous that from that point on, every time I, I poured myself a drink, I called somebody on the phone just so I could honestly say I didn't drink alone. <laughs> I tried to build a career for myself, but my life was fraught with all kinds of conflict. People complained about my aggressiveness, my need for control, but I couldn't see it. Early on when I was in treatment, someone, if five people tell you you have a green tail, it's probably, well, I'm looking. But I haven't always been looking, and sobriety hasn't always been, or my goal in sobriety has not. So people complained about my aggressiveness, my need for control. I couldn't see it. I held tightly to my belief in this very self-righteous God, a God of rights and wrongs. And I was very active in my church, where I might add I had lots of drinking buttons. As a mental health professional, I worked in child abuse, rape, I worked with alcoholic families, and I never, ever, ever realized that it was never, never occurred to me. They were sick. I had survived. All the while, my slips into drunkenness were becoming more numerous in the debating society inside of So I tried harder. You know, I measured, I changed brands, I did all the things we do, but the funniest thing I did, according to her, was that I read an article someplace that said that one ounce of alcohol is burned off by your liver every 40. So I used to time my drinks. Well, let's see, I have a limit of three. Right now I have three ounces on board. If I wait 45 minutes, I'll have two ounces on board. Then I can have one more. This went on forever. Marbles on a tabletop at sea. I can catch this one. No, I'll catch it. I drank because I was alcoholic. I drank because I was depressed. I drank because it was the best defense. And I drank to hide the darkest secret of my I wasn't gay. That's what I told myself. All the while living in a closet, what I would do when they found out. And filled with, filled with self-love. But I could fix that. I hired a good Catholic psychologist I didn't know at the time that he was alcoholic. So for the next five years, we drank together, and I saw him for twice a week, and it was his goal and my goal that I become a good, straight Catholic girl. I mean, I painted my nails, curled my hair, dresses. I did the whole nine yards. <clears throat> I show pictures of, that, of me at that time in my life now to people, and they're just you. And then, of course, it's always, well, why don't you go back to looking like that since old Butch? I said, well, <laughs> yes, I suppose that does look better, but it wouldn't be me. <laughs> My life continued to be fraught with conflict and personality conflict, and I got fired from job after job after job. Those assholes, it was their fault. They didn't understand. I was trying to save kids. What in the fuck was wrong with them? And I ended up homeless. Homeless, I really. And the only people that would give me a home, because I had no family, were the nuns who put me up at Meanwhile, all this time, I'm on my hands and knees praying like hell to be straight. 
we talk in this program about getting on our knees and surrendering to God. It never occurred to me to get on my knees and say, you're what mine. I only got on my knees and said, you know how much I want the white picket fence, the station wagon, the two kids, and a husband. You know this. I cannot carry this with me. When all else fails, go to school. I went back to graduate school and began to finish my PhD as a psychologist. I wasn't even there six months, and I fell in love with a woman. I had a case of the Omegos that wouldn't stop. Now, I don't know how many of you know what the Omegos are, but for me, they're the oh my gods. Oh my God, this is going to happen. Oh my God, that's going to happen. Oh my God, oh my God, it's my chicken little syndrome. So I fall in love with this woman, and I have the Omegos. Oh my God, they're going to find out. Oh my God, I'm going to get thrown out of graduate school. Now, this is not terribly unrealistic, because I did my doctorate at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. 30 miles away was where they started the Ku Klux Klan. The Democrats in that town meet in phone booths. They hang queers for Sunday activity. By this time, I could not drive to my internship site, which was an hour away when I would leave in the afternoon without stopping at the liquor store to have a beer on the highway. Who needed to wait? I drank and I drank and I drank and I used all of my willpower to avoid this relationship that I had fallen in love with. Needless to say, my willpower didn't work. We became involved and my panic simply grew. I learned from that that love was bigger than my ego. At that time, my sister, who's 20 years old, and asked if she could come to live with me. She was a high school. But the whole time, mind you, she was with me. I panicked that she would discover that my... I did everything I could to be the perfect mother. And all that happened was that I fell in. When I entered a psychiatric hospital 11 years ago, I could not tie two pieces of... I was convinced that this was God's punishment to me for love. I had no idea that alcohol had raped me of all opportunity for surrender. I was shocked and I was relieved when at the end of my alcohol assessment, Dr. Rohr looked at me. Then he laughed. And he opened his arms and said, welcome. I'm like, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. I'm not one of them. Not me. Oh, no, 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 me and no. No, I'm not one of them. I had a moment of relief because I wouldn't have to, to anymore. And then I had pure fear and panic because I could not sit in a room with all of you. I couldn't do that. I didn't want to hear what you had to say. I, I didn't want to hear any of it. I'd lived it. I'd been there. I knew what all that drunken bull. You know, my mother got sober years ago. God love her, and I shouldn't take her inventory, but I And her amends to me driving down the highway one day was to say, oh, and by the way, I'm kind of sorry for everything I ever And I let it go at the time. I should have said to her, does that include my broken nose? I entered treatment at the treatment center from hell. They did not like doctors, and they did, and they did not believe in dual diagnosis. I was dissociating up to 12 and they told me that it was in my head. They were right, but it wasn't in my head the way they thought it was in my head. I had a raging obsessive compulsive disorder. I never thought I could get clean enough. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't hardly talk. And all they did was abuse and harass me about being, and continue to tell me that I did not have a trauma disorder and I was, I was a garden variety alcoholic and well until I gave up on the idea of psychotherapy entirely and just went to meetings and I did everything they told me when my insurance ran out four months later and this large woman weighed 108 pounds I had lost my job and I had nowhere to go at this point AA saved my life I knew a couple lesbians that lived up in Chicago and by the grace of God they were willing to put me up until I could find a halfway house 
I did exactly what the previous treatment center had told me to do, and in the end it saved my life in a funny kind of paradoxical way. I went to two meetings a day, got a sponsor, and my sponsor said to me, my God, you're sick. I said, no, I'm not. I'm a garden variety drunk. <coughs> no, she said, you're very sick and I need you to talk to somebody. No, I couldn't. Well, she wore me down and I finally talked to Nurse Dorothy. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm just a garden variety drunk like everybody else. She said, no, dear, I don't think so. But she knew a program that could help me up in Milwaukee that was designed for doctors. So I went to this program and I interviewed and I had no most everything I own fit in my car. I met with the vice president of finance. I told him he could have all the money in my checking account. That I could afford to give him $700 a month and that I was willing to sell my car if they were willing to help. And he leaned across his desk and he said to me, keep the car, you'll need it for meeting. Shortly after that, I was introduced to Sheila S. Many of you probably know Sheila from the... I sat down with her and I was terribly overwrought and confused and I said, you know, I don't get it. You know, they told me I'm just a garden variety drunk and that, you know, my, my issues with my gayness don't matter and, and that I'm not really depressed. And Sheila kind of, if you know Sheila, just kind of cut me off and said, Roxanne, you have fleas and I will treat the fleas. Dr. Smith will treat the ticks. Oh, says I. My counselor in this treatment facility, however, was not quite so gracious, and when I was asking her about my dilemma about my homosexuality, she, only you can figure out whether or not it's a mortal sin. <laughs> a nun who has been my friend since I was 14 years old and a freshman in high school, she taught me religion, has stayed by me all of my life. And I called her, and I was out to nobody when I crashed, and I asked her to gay and she was there the next day. She brought me a stack of books on how you can be both gay and Catholic. I think that's an oxymoron and virtually impossible. But it was gracious on her part, and she sat with me, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and I said to her, it's really okay if you leave, because I know I don't matter, and I know I can't matter, and I know in my heart of hearts that God no longer And she hung her head, and she said to me, I stayed at Milwaukee Psychiatric Hospital for another four months. By this time, I was totally abandoned by anybody that ever knew me. He kept saying, you know, do you ever get better? I mean, are you... So four months later, totally abandoned, I was shored up with medication, a psychiatrist, aftercare, and a sponsor, and I moved into a halfway house and went back to work. Week after I moved in the halfway house, we got robbed. That's an oxymoron. Who robs a halfway house? <laughs> you know, they took my high school ring. It was one of the few things I had left. I'm like... I was bankrupt in every possible way. No family, no job, no money. I had been working since I was years old. I had a lot of pride, and I had to file bankruptcy. I will never forget what And by the grace of God, I stood with an attorney. Leave me, Roxanne. You're not the first. Today, I no longer call myself a Christian. They don't want me. Fuck it. I don't want them. The God of my childhood has shriveled up and died. I went to meetings simply because my way didn't work. I went to meetings to look for the green tail. I can do the first step. Don't drink, go to meetings, call your sponsor. It is true that the first step can... Three, four years into my recovery, I stopped going to meetings because I had a new addiction. Anybody that had been bankrupt knows you have to go back to work and you have to work 60 hours a week and you have to save money and you have to have a retirement fund and you have to do all these things because page 84 does not come true for Roxanne Morris. 
course, I wasn't paying any attention to the fact that I was enmeshed in all kinds of conflict, both personally and but I was watching my bank account. I even enrolled in the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago to become a psychoanalyst. The medication that I took for my depression kept my head just enough above water that I could function. In October of 1996, I found a lump in my When I first got sober, I went to a meeting in a detox center, and there was a guy there named George. He said the same goddamn thing every week. My name's George, and I'm a real alcoholic. He'd look around the room. Don't drink even if your ass falls off. Every week he said the same thing. And not long after the surgeon left my hospital room having told me that I had breast cancer. Don't drink even if your ass falls off. For the next 14 months I received treatment for my cancer and I was absolutely 100% self-sufficient. I did not ask for help. My nickname at the cancer clinic was Murphy. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. My port developed a blood clot which demanded an angioplasty and the angioplasty, the cancer treatment that's supposed to be a cakewalk, was not a cakewalk. The fancy drugs we had at the time that, that stopped people from this vomiting, chytril, Zofran, didn't work for me. My oncologist, every time she saw me through her, it was a horrible experience, horrible experience. I had 22 surgeries in 18 months. My chemotherapy nearly killed me, and I was an emotional wreck. To help it all, I started. I had quit six years. Seemed like a logical thing to do. I went to see Sheila S. and said, what am I going to do? I'm smoking. She said, what do you mean? What are you going to do? You're smoking. What are you going to do? You have cancer. And when's the last time you were at a meeting? I said, what am I going to do? I can't stop smoking. She said, when are you going to go to a meeting? She said, IDAA is coming up in Toronto. Are you going to go? Well, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> all right, I'll go. So off I went to Toronto. Now I have to tell you my first IDAA story because it really is very cute. They flew me, this wonderful organization, all of you at your expense, mind you, I had no money, to Boca Raton, Florida. And I was barely out of the closet as a gay woman and I certainly was not a happy drunk. And before I left, Sheila said to me, now you have to go to a gay and lesbian meeting down there. I'm like, oh. you know, I have fleas, ticks, and I'm queer. <laughs> so I get to Boca Raton and it's pushing 10 o'clock and I'm looking for the gay and lesbian meeting and I'm looking and I'm looking and God almighty, they, had to, they hit it out in hell's half acre. And I'm spinning around and spinning around and finally I thought I was there so I walked in this room and I sat down and I looked around and these people didn't look very gay to me but I thought, well, you know, how do I know what gay people look like? So I sat there for a minute and I started to listen and I thought, oh, I think I'm place. And some very nice gentleman came over to me and said, this is the sex addicts meeting, is this where you... I said, no, thank you very much, and made a mad dash for the door. I got out in the hall. I was a little verklempt, and a very nice woman came by and said, I'll bet you're looking for the gay and lesbian meeting, at which point I went, oh, my God, it shows. <laughs> that was Boca Raton. I went for three years after that. Now I'm back, starting with Toronto. Um, I went to the Toronto meeting. I reconnected with all my Milwaukee buddies. I started going back to doctor's group. I started asking for help. In the last few years, my physical health continues to decline. I'm not quite yet in what we would call remission from my cancer, but I am now dependent on this crazy cane because I don't have any. Um, and that took a long time to, to kind of, the, the neurologist said to me, well, I, uh, my, my solution for this would be a walker or a cane. And just like a five-year-old, I said, um, thank you very much, doctor, but I don't like either of those options. So I went with a cane. 
Um, I moved to California, and this is where God is in my life. I was training in Chicago to be a psychoanalyst. A psychoanalyst came through and did a weekend workshop, and I listened to her, and I wanted what she I just intuitively. And so I closed my practice in the Midwest during my, the end of my cancer treatment, and I moved to Berkeley, California, where, trust me, I do not stick out in a crowd. I mean, I have a friend who has blue hair, came to visit. I said, you've got to go a long way beyond that blue hair, honey, to get anybody to look at you in this town. I connected to the AA community in uh, Berkeley and Oakland. I've had a, a very good and positive experience. There. And I couldn't stop smoking. I tried everything, hypnosis, gum. And uh, so I was at a meeting one time, and a woman with some long-term sobriety came up to me, no noticing that I'm and having a hard time keeping my head above water and trying to deal with all kinds of issues and feelings that are very new to me at this stage of my life. And um, she said, you know, have you ever worked the steps? And I said, well, yeah, I go to a step meeting every Wednesday night. And she said, no, have you ever worked the steps? So she said to me, well, why don't we get together Thursday and we'll start working the steps? And I, somewhere in the middle of that, I said, uh, well, maybe you might kind of be willing to sponsor me. And she said, well, I knew you'd ask. But, you know, the truth is she came to me. I would never have gone to her. I'm too prideful. I'm too frightened. I'm just terrified to ask anybody to come in to that intimate level of my life. Well, there's been a lot of changes for me. And the continuing theme at this stage of my recovery is, as I said to you before, my way doesn't work. And I have a green tail that all of you can And my job is to pray for the willingness to, to you help me Surrender is very difficult for me. I don't know that you can get through the second step without a sense. I don't know that I can ever get there. My therapist tells me that when faith has left, then your prayer is for faith. So I pray for faith turn. What I know about myself at this stage of my recovery is that I am horribly afraid of... I can do the hate stuff. I can argue with a fence post. But when I come to this meeting and I see my friends, and most of the decisions I've made in my recovery have really been attempts to guard my isolation. I didn't think you wanted me. I've really never felt wanted by anybody. I generally feel kind of unwanted and unnecessary most of the time unless I'm working. It was very painful for me that the church that I love that in many ways saved me. I stand before you a person who still struggles with self-hatred and self-loathing, with shame and blame that knows no bottom. In the last two years, I have grieved and cried more than I thought human. I would go to my therapy sessions and say, I can't go on, I can't stop crying. I don't know what I'm crying about. I can't stop crying. A month ago, I thought out, I began to get angry. Who do you think I got angry at? Her. She says, well, you don't have to get so angry. I said, well, you can't have it both ways, goddammit. Today, I can share all of this with you. A year ago, I would have stood up here and told you exactly what was wrong with you, that it was your fault that I didn't belong, that the world was nothing more than an instant repeat of me. I'm not sure that I see the world all that differently today, but I am sure that the more of my green tail that I get to become acquainted with, the less anxiety and resentment and self 
The journey for me into faith and spirituality is similar to what I have said to my patients for many years. You know how to eat an elephant, don't you? One bite at a time. I have a tremendous amount of... I have many times in my life been touched by a deep, mysterious grace that I know comes from a power... It is at the core. For me, one day at a time, I will continue to look for God. Two years ago, I traveled the Alaskan Inlet. I saw whales and fish and eagles. And at some point on a lazy, quiet afternoon, it occurred to me. I recently went to coast to walk in jungles where you have to fly and then take a boat to get into the inside of this jungle. And I was amazed that five species of monkeys can coexist in that jungle and not eat each other or fight. I knew as I stood on the jungle floor that there was order in the world. Maybe I didn't know it. Maybe I couldn't feel it, but I knew that it was there. Finally, I had one of the best experiences of my life, actually, in this few weeks. I was standing in line, and a woman with a small child, about 18 months old, was ahead of me. And in Costco, you know, the cart goes one way, and the patron goes the other way. And, of course, this little kid got a little nervous. I love children. Kids and animals have always loved me. I have never been able to teach adults. So I began to play with this little girl, and she giggled, and I giggled, and I tickled, and we had more fun, and all of a sudden she was so filled with love and enthusiasm and grabbed hold of me and pulled me in. That's what IDAA does. It grabs hold of me. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world. Speaker here is Judy. Hi, everybody. I'm Judy. I'm an addict and alcoholic. And that one is going to be really hard to follow. Uh, when, um, when I signed up or volunteered to be one of the speakers, I wrote, um, I'll be a speaker, but please don't make me talk anything about spirituality. And then I realized this, the whole thing is called a spiritual odyssey, so that probably doesn't qualify me for being a speaker up here. But Hal asked me to speak about <clears throat> something that um, probably I feel so somewhat hesitant to talk about because it doesn't seem like it's, it's the approved way to do things. So if you don't like what I have to say, it's all Hal's fault. <laughs> when I came into AA, I said to my first sponsor, I don't believe in God, and I'm not going to, and I'm not going to pray. And she just said, okay. She also told me she was a Buddhist, and that confused the hell out of me, so that kind of kind of diluted this whole issue. But it has been okay for me for the, for, since um, 1987, a little more than 13 years. So what I'm going to talk about is um, how I don't believe in a personal God. And I'm not doing this just to be arrogant and nasty. I'm doing it in case there are other people who have a little trouble with this concept too. I'm not searching for God. I'm not waiting for his arrival into my life. 
I do believe that you believe, but I just don't. I used to be really terrified to admit this, and in fact, I still am, uh, because you're not going to like me about for this, and you're going to drum me out of the core. Yet, when people talk in meetings about God and prayer and stuff, I always feel like a fraud if I just kind of go along with it. I'm also afraid that AA isn't going to take if I'm not on the bandwagon. But just in case there are other people who are struggling with this, I, I want to be let you know that somehow, for some people anyway, at least for me, this alcoholic, a, God did not have to come dashing in in a flash into my life for the program to work for this amount of time. I certainly believe in a higher power. I just don't choose to call that God. Now, I probably have a real simpleton way of looking at this, so maybe it's all God and I just don't know it. But to me, God means a supreme being who can act upon prayers or cannot act upon them. It's somebody or a power constantly attuned to my existence and my well-being. The higher power that I believe in is a power like the wind or gravity, electricity. That, that to me, is power, like the laws of nature. There certainly, to me, is an all-encompassing force that got everything here and keeps it here, keeps all those galaxies wherever they're supposed to be. But God, to me, is a person. It's a he or a she, and my higher power, which is an it. A personal God is, to me, sort of like a Santa Claus, somebody who's keeping track of goodness and badness all the time and going to reward it or not. A personal God is concerned for each individual's welfare and for what they're praying for. My higher power can't be a personal entity. I can't develop any kind of a spiritual relationship with the wind. The idea of a conscious contact to me is, is irrelevant. Obviously, a higher power has all the power, good and bad. And it always annoys me when I hear people in the rooms talk about how everything man does is bad and everything God does is good. Because I don't think it's that way. I think the higher power does everything. It makes sunsets and rainbows, and it also makes earthquakes and tornadoes. It makes people love and care for each other, and it makes people kill each other and have wars. I also don't think there's any particular plan for the higher power, other than maybe that, that this higher power has anything in mind or whatever. He has no plan other than maybe keeping everything going, the universe and life. I think everything just happens, not because that's the way it should be, but that's because just because that's the way it is. For instance, I think the higher power somehow or other has, is responsible for the creation of genes and amino acids and whirling them all into some sort of a double helix. And for some of us, someplace in that double helix is a little notch or a little smudge or something that makes us prone to addiction. And that somehow some of us get in harm's way, more or less, and we develop the disease of addiction. For me, the specific higher power, the power, is AA itself. It's the fellowship. I trust AA completely, and for me, I guess this is my spirituality. AA, to me, is a group of people who were once miserable and desperate who are now happy and grateful to be in recovery. It's a group that's totally disparate in its makeup, people with de very different histories, yet we all have the same story, and we all have the same feelings. And most important, it's a group that can hold on to its, what it has only if it gives it away to other people, to other alcoholics. As you know, there's no leaders. There's just groups. The groups just happen. There's traditions, but there's no rules. 
There's three basic objectives, as you know. Don't drink, which is pretty straightforward. Go to meetings, which to me is where the higher powers is, and ask for help, which is what we have to do to get this power of AA. My own early experience with God was being raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I learned everything I needed to know by memorizing the catechism and doing all the rituals. I really like that. I'm not bad rapping it at all. I never had to think about ethics or morality. And when times got tough and you had to think about what you were going to do with other people and how you're going to handle sexuality, I didn't have to give it any thought at all because there were a whole bunch of rules that already straightened that out for me. I was even a, a real fanatic. When I was in residency, I would go, and on for the whole weekend, I would go to great lengths to get somebody to cover for me so I could go to Mass. I loved the Mass. I loved it in Latin. It sounded good. It felt good. I loved the rituals. I liked the idea of being in a church kind of alone. You never talked. In my day, you never touched or talked to anybody else in the church, and I kind of liked that. I believed everything I was told. In getting this talk together, I, I read a book called um, True Believers and Skeptics, not an AA-approved book, but at any rate, uh, by Chet Ramo, who I never heard of, but he's a professor of physics at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. And he describes religion, and no AA is not a religion, as religion in particular provides a sense of belonging to a group, a history, a culture in which to take pride, great works of art, stirring literature, service to the poor and needy, satisfying liturgical celebrations and the rites of passage. It provides the consolation of belonging to one true faith and of being an insider. Obviously, AA is not a religion, but it seems to fit that same sort of definition. But my concept of the reason to be in my religion was to avoid eternal damnation. To be an AA, the point is to help yourself and most of all to help other alcoholics. To be altruistic, not to be just trying to not get yourself in a deep shit. My own story is I started using drugs in medical school. I started for the same similar reasons that many of you, I suppose, I didn't feel good enough about myself. I didn't feel good enough to get into medical school, and I certainly didn't feel adequate enough to learn that enormous amount of information that if I forgot anything, it was going to kill people. I used amphetamines, barbiturates, and tranquilizers. Amphetamines helped me stay awake, and barbiturates kind of, you know, took the edge off of that, and I tried to titrate my life nicely. didn't work too well, but I tried for a long, many years. I used throughout all of medical school and my first residency, which was pediatrics. As my use escalated and my depression, I eventually also escalated. I got myself first into a mental hospital and then into a treatment center, a very long-term treatment center. And at that time, the religion just seemed to disappear. Now, granted, I was in a treatment center that was run a little bit like boot camp, so they wouldn't have let me out to go to church anyway, but I didn't really kind of want to. I didn't have any great epiphany or a loss of faith. And I never really noticed the loss. I never felt, I still don't feel abandoned by God or angry about God. It just kind of wasn't in the picture anymore. But this two-year therapeutic community introduced me to the idea of people helping each other without any clergy or professional helpers in the way. It also made me feel at home. Very different kind of people from who I was. This was not a healthcare professional's organization, treatment organization. They hated me for being healthcare. 
and smart, had more education than everybody in the house put together. But I still knew I belonged, and they still loved me back into health. But I emerged from this place cured. That's what they said. I didn't need any follow-up. I certainly didn't need any 12-step programs. In fact, we laughed at 12-step programs because, you see, they were for alcoholics, and we were addicts, and it was very different, different disease. And for some reason that I sort of can't remember now, we were far better than the alcoholics. Um, so we didn't need any of that stuff, and not only that, it was okay to drink because we were different. Not, not quite right. Uh, for the next 17 years, I stayed relatively clean, and by relatively, I mean occasional pills here and there. Nothing like the flair of my, my hardcore active use, but, you know, occasionally a little prescription for myself or, you know, just a little necessary pills, not the same ones that I was addicted to. But I still thought I was clean and sober. I th and I thought I was still cured, of course, because they graduated me from this place. But clean, unclean though I was or whatever, the alcoholism continued to grow. I'm sure I was always an alcoholic, and I'm sure I always abused alcohol, but it kind of got lost in the shuffle since the pill stuff was much more exciting. I was doing all the alcoholic drinking that we all do. I drank alone, drank more than I wanted to, drank more than I said I was going to, went to work, not necessarily drunk, but so hungover, all I could think about was whether or not I was going to throw up. Not good. Real, real uh, alcohol things. But I, finally I decided that this, this drinking was not compatible with what I was thinking was a sober, clean life. So I stopped. And I stopped, and did, stopped on my own and didn't drink for two years. But again, I was still nipping a little bit here and there on the pills. So I wasn't really clean, maybe sober. After two years, I did go to AA um, and found, again, that I was home. So AA, I don't think AA actually got me sober, but it keeps me sober and it keeps me with a sense of serenity. I, I think another reason I have trouble with the God concept is my scientific background, and I almost hate to say that because I don't really think I'm a scientist at all. But I, I do believe in um, the scientific investigation and discovery, and that through science we do learn how things work, many things, and more and more as time goes on, and it explains things. The germ theory of illness helped take away the idea that the plague was due to the fact that people were being punished for some illness, for some sins they had done in their society. Eclipses also, we got explained so that they weren't just some sort of sign from God. And I'm totally awed by all that. I'm totally awed by nature, the, all, the, all that higher power stuff that's unexplainable or explainable. To me, it's a great miracle that two cells the egg and sperm get together and eventually a, a child, a baby, comes out of that. Even though we've, that's, the whole process has been studied and we know every inch of it along the way, it's still to me a miracle. It's a miracle to me that our bodies are full of all this chemistry that I once probably learned for a test and rapidly forgot. Actions, reactions, feedback loops, all of this is going on all the time. And we're unaware of it, but it still happens. I'm amazed that birds can migrate from way up in the Arctic Circle down to the tip of Argentina without really any map or without having done it before. Just the laws of nature to me are absolutely wonderful, but they don't really have much to do with my sobriety. But I do believe that even if we eventually figure out a lot more about addiction and we, we get to understand all the 
biochemistry and whatever neurotransmitters are screwed up, even if they invent a pill, it's not going to take away the need for AA because it's a whole different thing. AA is what keeps us sober and, and serene and gives us a way of life. I thought I'd, I'd just kind of go through this, how I've done the steps or not done them correctly. Um, and I don't mean to be rewriting the big book, but this is how they, I could conceive of them, even though I don't think of a personal God sitting up there waiting to hear my, whether or not I'm praying. First, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I had no problem with that one. I was drinking out of control, and I certainly wasn't being able to, to not drink. Second, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This one was a great relief to me, because to hear that AA was going to help me get sane and going to help me with my drinking was really a great relief. I didn't have to cure it. I didn't have to keep it cured. It wasn't up to my willpower. AA was going to help me with this. Third, made a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood him. To me, that's not to God, but to AA the wonderful fellowship of people caring for themselves and others so we don't return to using and die. I did turn my, way over, my life over to a new way of life, taking suggestions, asking for help, things I hadn't done before. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. This didn't seem to be related to God, but obviously it's a critical point unless all you want to do is stop drinking. Because unless we look at the underlying misery we cause ourselves and others, it doesn't change our lives. Five, we admitted to God and others that, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. I can't see much point in admitting it to God because it seems like if there is a God, he ought to know it already, what my wrongs were. But certainly to myself and to another human being, it was important. Important to keep me honest if I decide to do some of these defective things again. But even more so to take away some of that sense of uniqueness that we all have that keeps this illness going. Six, was entirely ready to have God remove all the defects of character, and seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. These are two that are very difficult for a person who doesn't have God. I just sort of ignore the reference to God, but I am ready to work on defects now that I know what they are. And I do need to seek change actively through being mindful and making a concerted effort. I'm not so sure that maybe I don't really pray. I don't know. I talk to myself. It seems to me about sort of the same thing. One of my worst character defects is being judgmental, which is probably not a great one for a doctor, especially a psychiatrist who should be able to accept everything. But it's there. It's this constant tape of what's wrong with everybody else or how they're better than me. But at any way, I'm judging at all times. And if I can sort of run it in my head, don't do this, this is stupid, or and look at why I'm, why I'm doing it, what's, what about me is making me need to judge everybody else, that to me is going to help me change it. In, um, as Bill sees it, I, there, it was a suggestion for someone that if you have a trouble with somebody, you're being judgmental and you find them really annoying, that, to rewrite the serenity prayer as God, grant me the serenity to love their best and never fear their worst. Eight, made a list of all persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends, and nine, made direct amends to the, such people when possible, except when to do that would injure them or others. This step doesn't seem to involve God, but it's really promoting our responsibility for our past. If we don't clean up the wreckage of the past without trying to blame others or rationalize it away, we're never going to become the human beings we want to be. And step 10 reinforces this. 
continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. What, what better instructions for a good way of life? And it also doesn't say anywhere that we're powerless and blameless over our actions, nor does it say that we're, we're not responsible for our ongoing actions. We are. We're not going to be cured, and I don't ever have to graduate from this program. Step 11, again, is one of the ones that's pretty hard for me. Thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I can't think, at least the God that I think of is God, that if there is a God, his will would be influenced by my prayers. To me, the higher power is the boss. I can turn things over because to me that means there's not much point in worrying about things because something else besides me is going to determine the outcome. That biopsy is either going to be benign or malignant, whether I pray about it or not. But I can try to accept whatever absence. In, uh, another thing I got from, in, in, as Bill sees it, it says, the minute I figure out I have a pretty clear pipeline to God, I've become egotistical enough to get into real trouble. Nobody can cause more needless grief than a power driver who thinks he's got it straight from God. The 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry the message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I certainly want to practice these principles on a daily basis as best I can because I mean it, I think it means for a better way of life. And I desperately want to give to any alcoholic who's still out there what I have because it's such a gift to be sober. I'm not convinced that I've had a spiritual awakening. Maybe some of you would hear it that way. I just became aware of the life as so shown to me by you folks in AA, a better way of life. I also don't really believe I'm here for any purpose. If something good happens because of my existence, so be it. But I don't think I have any more purpose than ants or trees or giraffes. The point of life to me is the journey, I guess maybe the spiritual odyssey. And AA shows me the wonderful way to do that. AA has worked for me in many, many more ways than just keeping me sober. I've gotten through some difficult times without even thinking about picking up a drink or a drug. Surgery, divorce, malpractice suit. I brought my coin to the courthouse during the malpractice suit. I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to do for me, but I had it in my pocket. And I, I got that helped me get through this trial. I'm sure I got through all those things far better with AA than I would have if I'd been waiting for some medication to kick in and fix it. AA works because of the people. And I hear how others do life and how they do hard times, and I take inspiration and instructions from them. Again, from as Bill sees it, this is quoting, when, uh, I gather, when they were writing the big book. Every voice was playing its appointed part. Our atheists and agnostics widened our gateway so that all might pass through it, regardless of their belief or lack of it. I'm quite certain that if I had been told when I came into AA that I absolutely had to believe in a God, I wouldn't have stayed. Maybe, I don't know. But I know that's true for my sister, who had a terrible time getting into this program, and finally got in because I told her, just ignore whatever you don't want to hear and just do it. And she's now three years sober. I think you still expect that one day I'm going to come to my senses and believe in a personal God. And maybe it will be. Maybe I will. But despite my feelings, you've all let me stay, I think, unless you drum me out of the core after I sit down. I wish to, to end by, by thanking you 
for allowing me to share my experience, strength, and hope. I don't wish to change anybody's thinking. The studies have shown that at least 95% of the people in and out of AA believe in a higher power and a life after death, so I'm sure not in the majority. I know that. I only help to hope to help others who may have trouble with the concept and the necessity of a personal God. But I am forever grateful for AA and for my, I owe my whole life to AA. And maybe I've stayed clean and sober despite myself. But I still have, the thing that it says on our coin is to thine own self be true. And that's still how I have to think about it. I am being true to my own self. And just to, when I was getting this together, the week I was working on it, a cartoon appeared in my news, our newspaper. It's BC, which I think you probably is syndicated and you all know it, but just in case, it's a couple of uh, cavemen um, from prehistoric times. One is an answer man and one asks the questions, and these two frequently talk to one another about philosophical things. Anyway, he says, one says, what, go- what could a dead atheist, a dead agnostic, and a dead saint possibly have in common? And the other guy says, they all know there's a God. Thanks. next speaker is Stan. Hello, my name's Stan. I'm an addict and alcoholic. Hi, and I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be anywhere. And uh, I thought a lot about what I would talk about. I, I figured the best thing I could do is tell my story because I know that pretty well. I'll probably get it right even. And um, do it in the context of, of a spiritual odyssey. Uh, I grew I grew up in Philadelphia. I uh, was born in 1953. I went into treatment in 1983. That's because I was intervened on. I couldn't see that I had a problem. I was raised in a Jewish household, and uh, I had loving parents. There wasn't much in the way of uh, alcoholism or addiction. My father could drink fairly heavily but never crossed the line. My mother gambled a little bit, and um, I had one uncle and a cousin who have been in it in the program. So there was some background. Um, You know, when I look back, I think my whole life has basically been a spiritual odyssey, but I didn't realize that the first 29 years. And um, I was always looking for something, but I wasn't sure what it was. And uh, so I looked at a lot of different options over the years to try. I was physically small as a kid, adult at this point. And uh, I always felt unique, and I always felt different, and I was shy, and I was fearful. And I was like uh, obsessive-compulsive as a kid. My mother would send me out in, in, in a white outfit, and I would come back completely clean to everybody. And that's the way I was. And that obsession and compulsion has been there throughout my entire, my entire life. I didn't get any institutional guilt like uh, a number of the Catholics that have spoken have talked about. I got genetic guilt. <laughs> Jews get genetic guilt. So, so that was, uh, I didn't have to acquire it. It was there from the beginning. And um, I always say my parents really were very observant Jews. They used to observe me go into the synagogue when they dropped me off. And then they would go home. So there wasn't a lot of talk about God in my household. And most of the rituals surrounding religion were basically just like meals at the time of, uh, of different holidays. And everybody would come over and eat, and they would talk about one another, you know, before they got there. Then they would all act nice to one another, and then they would go home. And that was our Jewish holidays, basically. 
And, you know, they would maybe go to synagogue on the high holy days. And, uh, and that was it. So there wasn't much of a concept of God. And, um, and I always resented having to go to Hebrew school. You know, I just knew that as soon as I got out and I got bar mitzvahed, that was it. That was the end of that formal religion in my life. And I pretty much stuck to that. They uh, conned me into one year of confirmation somehow. Um, but I vowed that that was basically the end of it. And uh, to tell you the truth, since being in AA, I spent more time in churches than in synagogue. When I was growing up, uh, I learned early on that I could pretty much get away with whatever I wanted to as long as I continued to achieve academically. And um, that was sort of like the unwritten rule in the house, that if you did well in school, you could pretty much go about your business and you'd be left to your own devices for the most part, as long as you showed some degree of responsibility. You know, so I learned that early on, and I internalized that. And that internalization later served me well in the sense that I always thought to myself, as long as I was achieving and going forward, then I must be okay in life. My first introduction to alcohol was at these, you know, ritual satyrs. And I always say they probably, they, I think it's a plot to get Jews not to drink. Because when you're a little kid, what they do is they take a little bit of Manischewitz, they stick it in some seltzer water, and they give you that to drink. And I don't know if anybody's ever tasted that, but it's terrible. But I didn't let that stop me. And uh, the other drinking that I would do is I would go to bar mitzvahs, as my friends got bar mitzvahs, and I would, like, drain the undrained glasses off the table, you know. And uh, I thought that was okay. I thought that was pretty cool. You really couldn't get drinks from the bar, uh, so that's the way I got alcohol. And uh, I continued to feel unique. I continued to feel different. And, but somehow I compensated to that for some degree by, like, hanging out in the street and playing ball. And um, when I got into junior high and high school, I continued to feel feel that way because I was quite short. I was very shy around girls. And um, what I ended up doing eventually was hanging out with all the other people that felt different as well. And um, eventually that evolved into like drinking wine and smoking pot in people's basements. I spent a lot of time in basements. I guess I was part of the underground. And uh, this was the way that we all got together. And I thought that was okay. And I liked the way it made me feel. I liked the way that any, I liked to feel different than the way that I felt, basically. So I was always looking for something to make me feel different than the way I felt, because I was with myself. You know, I was like uncomfortable in a crowd and uncomfortable when I was alone. And anything that would alter my consciousness, or so I thought. Now, my use was basically from during the 70s and early 80s. So I was part of the psychedelic era. I bought into that, too. And I had this idea in my head that as long as I was doing these consciousness-raising drugs, then that I, w I was okay. And, you know, so I would do hallucinogens, and I would find God. And then, like, God would disappear. You know, I would see God at a molecular level. I could see subatomic particles at times. And I can tell you that at one point during my life, I discovered the secret to peace on earth. But then I forgot it. And I could never find it again. And what I would do is I would sequentially go through various substances because if anybody's like me, you know, the first time I would do something, I would figure this is it. 
you know, and then I could never find that it again. So I'd go on to something else and figure maybe this is it. Uh, I stopped drinking and using, I, you know, before clear, clear beer. I'm sort of sorry I missed that. You know, maybe that was it, but I'll never know. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that came out that I'll never know whether that was it or not. But I don't really particularly care to find that anymore, but it's just the way that I am. And, um, but the times changed, and uh, my feelings changed. I always also lived under the illusion that when I found the right thing, and I didn't know if it was going to be the right woman, whether it was going to be the right job, you know, whether it was going to be the right something, then I would live a normal life. I would put down all this stuff, and I would just go about my business. And I always lived under that illusion. And um, so I figured maybe the right relationship, but, you know, women get tired of you, like, when you're just there, when, when you only expect them to fulfill all your needs at any given time and don't give anything back, they, they see something wrong with that. Go figure, you know? And uh, that's the way that I lived my life. So I lived a completely selfish existence, and people were there for my disposal, and I was God. And that was my spiritual odyssey at that point. And I thought the big book was the physician's desk reference, you know, because it was blue and it had a little bit of print on the cover. And it had all the good stuff in there on all the different pages. And so I performed uh, pharmaceutical experiments and my body was a laboratory, but I could never find the right combination. And I looked in a lot of different places. And um, I got into college because I had done well in high school. So I figured in my mind that I must really be okay because I was still progressing. And I continued to abuse different things, which, and, uh, but I continued to do well. I never intended to be a physician. Uh, I was a psychology major, and uh, somehow I ended up in medical school. I did apply, but somehow I ended up going. And um, so I figured, like, uh, you know, this is pretty cool. And maybe I should straighten up my act, but it didn't straighten up at all. And um, I got into different scrapes in medical school. And uh, it was interesting. I ended up going to medical school in the same hospital that I was born. So I got into these different scrapes, got into trouble for basically getting caught abusing substances, but would worm my way out of it and always say never again. It was also during this time that I met my wife. Uh, the medical school that I went to was 60% women and 40% men because it had been women's medical college. And uh, she's a lovely woman. And uh, you know, I figured maybe this was the answer. So we started hanging out and uh, you know, we eventually got married. And you know, so this is like Jewish American dream, right? Two doctors in one household. So everything must really be okay. And uh, I figured, and anybody looking at me externally would say that, that this is good. You know, this guy must be happy, but I was not at all happy. There was something missing, and I couldn't find out what it was, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, there were a lot of crazy things that I did. You know, I used to think, like, uh, medicine cabinets, was like, it was like going to the mall. I would do my shopping there at different people's houses in their medicine cabinets. I got taken off a case when I was on a psychiatric rotation because uh, one of the guys thought he was hanging out with one of his homeboys, you know? And I was basically acting as uh, his therapist, you know, as a medical student. But he could see what I couldn't, um, that there was something wrong. 
and I just didn't know what it was. You know, I used to steal pills from my mom, from my grandmother, and this is what I, but, but I could justify this in my head. You know, that's the way that I think. My head is my worst enemy, obviously. And, uh, you know, an addict alone is in bad company. And I was in bad company a lot of the time because nobody wanted to be with me. For some reason, this woman wanted to be with me, and she knew something of my substance abuse, but not to the depths. I spent a lot of times in bathrooms. She must have thought I was severely constipated because I was in bathrooms for hours doing different things, and, um, except for going to the bathroom. And, and this is the way that I was, and I thought that this was perfectly normal, and I saw no alternative. So I almost got thrown out of medical school, but I got into, a, I got into an internship and in residency in Philadelphia, and uh, we got married. And uh, this, she, just, she just stuck with me. She was probably the first instance of unconditional love. My parents had unconditional love for me as well, so that's not a fair statement, but she was certainly an instance of, of unconditional love. And uh, that was a hard thing for me to realize and to handle, especially when I was in that particular head. So I get into uh, internship, and I end up uh, in the emergency room of the hospital I'm on call for. This is not a good thing. And they did a urine on me, and it had, like, every drug in the world, you know. And uh, somehow I talked my way out of that as well. They sent me to a psychiatrist, and I conned him out of prescriptions. Uh, and, um, and I continued my pattern of abuse. They just moved me from the peripheral hospital into the main hospital so they could keep an eye on me. And um, it's funny, I was talking about this last night. You know, I was so crazy that I would, like, do drugs that I didn't like, but then I would do them again to make sure I really didn't like them. And uh, this was perfectly logical, because maybe I would really like it the second time. And um, the psychiatrist put me on antidepressants, and they made me crazy, but I took them again to make sure they really made me crazy. And I started uh, shooting drugs uh, while I was at work, and this was also frowned upon. And, and uh, I, got, I got intervened on, you know, and uh, they said something has to change. And uh, I didn't really know what their problem was, but I knew I was in trouble because they took my beeper away. And nobody wants an intern's beeper. You know, so if they take your beeper away, you're like in deep shit. So I knew I was in deep shit, and I knew that something had to change. And what they did was, um, they sent me to a meeting at 21st and Spring Garden, a doctor's meeting. Penny's laughing because there's some crazy people at that meeting. There was no physician's health program in the state of Pennsylvania at that time. And uh, so they sent me to this meeting. And, and the meeting format was there was a beginner's meeting and then there was a regular meeting. And the beginner's meeting uh, was like, if you were the beginner, they talked about you. And then the regular meeting was an amplification of the beginner's meeting. So I walk into this meeting and uh, I introduce myself and I tell them I use drugs and alcohol. And they said, ah, you're, you're all fucked up and you're, you're an addict and an alcoholic. And like everybody in the room thought that same thing. But I thought that same thing too. That was like, that was a relief. Because finally I had a label, you know, and I knew what I was. 
So we finished up that half hour, and I figured, ah, oh, things are going to be okay now. And then we went to the big meeting, and they went around the room, and everybody did the same thing. And uh, I was in a state of grace at that point, though, because I was willing to listen. And they told me that I needed to go away somewhere. And there was a guy there that was consulting for a few different rehabs. So he gave me my choice of rehab. And he said, I can go in Philadelphia or I can go to Florida. So I said, I'm going to Florida. I'm going to go on a vacation, man. You know, I'll, I think I took a tennis racket with me. And I figure I'm going to get a tan and I'm going to go away and then I'm going to come back and everything is going to be okay. So I get these plane tickets in the mail. My wife is glad I'm going to Florida. She was in residency at the same time, so this was a stressful situation. And she didn't know what to do with me, and nobody knew what to do with me. And um, I can't even remember who drove me to the airport. They drive me to the airport, and I fly into either Tampa or Orlando, and I can't tell you which one. And it didn't matter. And there was a guy there waiting, and he said, uh, and, and, and it was a pretty big airport, and there were a lot of people on this plane, but this guy was waiting there, and he knew who I was as soon as I got off the plane. He goes, you're here for me, aren't you? I'm from such and such rehab. It was White Deer Rehab. They had opened up a rehab in Florida. So he drove me out to the middle of this place in Bushnell, Florida. Uh, this was not where I envisioned I was going to be. You know, Jews go to Miami Beach. It's like, uh, you know, it's like an annual migration. But they don't go to Bushnell, Florida, in the center of the state. And they put me into the detox, and they examined me, and... Uh, a nurse came by, and she was a little bit obese and short and had stubby little fingers, and she told me to bend over, and she checked, she checked me for drugs. And she was digging for gold, I think. <laughs> and, um, you know, she hit bottom, and I hit bottom at the same time. <laughs> and I knew, I knew at that instant that the best I, this was the best that I could do. My thinking had taken me to this. This was it. Now that's a pretty sad, that's a pretty sad thing, you know? Because I had a lot of education and a fair amount of intellect, or so I thought, and this was the best that I could do. So this was a pretty sad thing, I thought at the time. And uh, they put me into the detox, they moved me into the general population, and there were only like 28 people in this place, and I was the only physician, and that was like perfect for me, that was for me because I was just another alcoholic and drug addict, and I knew that. And I knew at that instant that I was powerless, and my life was unmanageable. And so I'm looking around, and I'm figuring out, how the hell do I get out of this? You know, how, what do I have to do? So I took direction. And it was just all recovering people in this rehab, and we started to go to outside meetings. And we went to a meeting in a place called Spring Hill, Florida. And that's... It's in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I was sitting in that meeting, and I was listening to a person. And uh, a guy was talking about what it had been like, what, it, what had happened, and what it was like. And I knew in my heart that I was supposed to be there. I knew that this was my destiny, and this was my fate. And the plan became apparent to me. And I had a lot of conditions when I got down to the rehab, but they all came off in that instant. And I came to believe that whatever fixed that gentleman 
to fix me and restore me to sanity. And I made a decision in that instant to turn my will and my life over to care whatever that was. And that's the power that I understand to be God for me. And that was my spiritual journey up until that point. Now, I have no great understanding of God. And like I said, I have like this, you know, 70s experience, you know. So I sort of see God as this external force that also resides within us, that is omnipresent and everywhere, and that binds us all together. And, um, and I could feel that in that room. I could feel something above and beyond the presence of the people in that room and above and beyond what that gentleman was saying. And um, I remember dr- riding back in the bus to the rehab and uh, feeling just uh, incredibly good and sleeping very well that night and waking up the next morning and thinking that, man, I must really be whacked out now because I had had no concept of anything like that. This was completely foreign to me. I had to abandon old ideas just like they talk of. And, um, you know, I came to believe in that power. The gentleman that was running the rehab came up to me and said, I heard you had a spiritual experience last night. And I guess I said, I suppose. So I was one of those people that was fortunate to have had a spiritual experience of the sudden variety, different from what you heard in the earlier speech. They gave me a fourth step guide, the Hazelton guide. And I started looking through this thing. And it's pretty long, you know. But it's funny, there were seven deadly sins. And I go, man, only seven? I go, I think I did more than seven. (laughs) And uh, so I started to try and write this out, but I really couldn't couldn't write it out then. And uh, this was in the day of 28-day rehabs. And I flew back to Philadelphia. And that night I was in a meeting. And I was heavily, heavily influenced by the 12 steps. These people were all about the 12 steps. And I sat there and I listened. And eventually, going back to that meeting, um, a gentleman came up to me and said, how you doing? And uh, I said, I'm doing okay. And he said, you're a liar. And you won't get better unless you take the steps. So I figured he was at least 50%. He could see a liar. And uh, I didn't like him, so I figured he must have something that I wanted. Because the way my head works, I could tell you, you know, like if somebody has something more than I do, I, I don't like him, man. I got an immediate resentment. That's the way my head works, you know. You're sitting in the mall, you see some guy walk by with this unbelievably gorgeous woman, and you think, he must be a real jerk. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that. But that's the way my head works. So I really didn't like this guy, so I figured he must really have something good. So I did what I didn't want to do, and I asked him to help me. And he told me that he would help me if I let him. He told me to get a second sponsor, and his sponsor became my second sponsor. And they guided guided me through these 12 steps. And um, my spiritual odyssey became aligned with this program. The way I had lived my life and my greatest weakness became my greatest opportunity to find a new way of life. That to me is just so simple and beautiful that it must be spiritually correct. You know, when I look at it, it's basically, you know, find some outside force uh, that gives me some direction. Come to terms with my past, both with myself and other people, 
live in the present, and tell other people how. I mean, that's so simple and so beautiful. So that's what I did. The reason I did it was because I had no choice other than to do that. I knew in my heart that if I went back out again, I would probably die. Maybe I would be fortunate enough to have a rapid death from an overdose. Or maybe I would be unfortunate and continue living a miserable life and die slowly. But I didn't, ever, I didn't know if I could ever come back, come back again. So I said, what the hell, I might as well give it a shot. So I got involved with these sponsors. I got involved with a home group. I got involved in service work. And my life began to get better. My wife got into her own 12-step fellowship because she became attracted to the program. And, um, you know, we're still together today, uh, 19, years, 19 years later. And uh, I've been so blessed. Both of my children were born after I was well into recovery. It's just an incredible blessing. I've had the opportunity to uh, be involved in this fellowship and be part of the Pittsburgh meeting and part of the 12-step program. And um, I have a certain sense, you know, of contentment in my life. I know that no matter what is going on around me, everything is really okay. I've discovered my inner child. It's an inner brat, okay? But I know that I'm 47 years old, and I still need adult supervision. But that's okay today. I know those things. And there are people there for me that I can rely upon. There's people in this program, there's my family, and there's other people in my life from whom I can take direction. So my spiritual odyssey is, is an ongoing process. You know, it brought a Jewish guy from Philadelphia to Oklahoma City. That's pretty incredible. I thought I needed a passport. Uh, but I'm just happy to be here and happy to have had the opportunity to share my, you know, my, uh, my experience, uh, my strength, and my hope. Because I have some hope today. I had no faith in my life prior to getting into this 12th and um, it's there and it's always present.